Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. So, Chris, let's just get into it. While performance across Coolabar Capital Investments' suite of short and long-duration active credit strategies was strong in January, 2021 continued last year's thematic of offering up its share of surprises. Who would have thought that, by the way, Reddit's Rambos would engineer the mother of all short squeezes on the hedge fund masters of the universe, felling the kings of finance? It was the financial market's equivalent of the French Revolution, and that contingency firmly sits in the camp of unknown unknowns. Chris, can you give us a summary of how things went in the month? Yeah, sure, Yingers. Performance-wise, the standout for Coolabar was, once again, our long-short active credit strategies with our Insta-only zero-duration long-short opportunity strategy, which has an average AA-minus credit rating, returning 2.32% gross in the month of January. Now, this is an Insta-only product, so we talk about returns in gross, not net terms, because fee terms are, of course, confidential. That was closely followed by Coolabar's zero-duration long-short credit fund, which is a public offering, and has an average AA-minus rating, which returned 1.56% gross or 1.2% net, compared to returns on the RBA cash rate, which delivered just 0.0% in January. The Osborne floating rate note index, which returned 0.09%. The selective ASX hybrids index, which returned 0.69%. And the two big laggards in the month, Global equities, which ended up down 0.45%, and the fixed rate Osborne Composite Bond Index, which was down 0.42%. Since its inception on the 1st of May last year, the long short opportunity strategy has now returned 14.2% gross on a non annualized basis. And our public long short credit fund has returned 10.1% gross or between 7.1% and 7.3% net over the year to end January. And that translates into an excess return above the RBA cash rate of 6.9% after fees. Interestingly, over this period, the long short credit fund's net returns substantially exceeded the gross performance of the equity market. So whereas we were up up to 7.3% net, the All Ordinaries Accumulation Index over the 12 months to end January was down 0.71%. Yes, Chris. After the robust price action in the first few weeks of January, which was seemingly encouraged by the transition to a more predictable US president, equity markets gave this back after selling triggered by the Main Street, or Reddit, attack on short sellers' positions, the poster chart of which was GameStop. It is now well documented that some of the best long-short equity hedge funds in the world lost between 10 and 50% in January as the Reddit hordes explicitly targeted their vulnerable short sales, bidding up the price of these once-unloved companies and forcing the short sellers to then cover their positions by buying back the stock for huge realised losses. These losses were in turn covered by sales of other, more profitable positions, precipitating the sharp market-wide correction evidence in the final week of the month. The All Ordinaries Accumulation Index finished January up 0.3%, while Global Equities X Australia lost 0.45% in Australian dollar terms. Chris, is this the butterfly flapping its wings that will propagate a wider tsunami? 
Yeah, very good question, Ying is. Well, that is certainly possible given historically stretched equity market valuations, which notably contrast with credit spreads on investment-grade financials that remain well wide of their 2007 levels. This could, I think, actually be a positive for shares. The fact is, as you noted, that the optics of the Reddit peasants guillotining aristocratic hedge fund kings looks like an American retail revolution that could attract vast quantities of additional cash hoping to capitalise on such quick and seemingly egalitarian wins. And to the extent that short selling is more difficult in the future, the bid side will be only stronger. The real driver of equity returns in the period since the COVID-induced shock in March has not been Robin Hood, but rather the unprecedented wave of ultra-cheap money that has been pumped into financial systems and the radical reduction in risk-free discount rates by central banks legitimately seeking to provide a financial bridge from the pandemic to some semblance of normality when the pathogen is cauterized or eliminated. The truth is that hedge funds blaming their plight on retail investors really missed the much bigger picture, which was the power of central banks disintermediating freely functioning markets. And that's something that we were certainly focused on in terms of our own portfolio positioning, as many listeners will remember, in February and March, and particularly in March, when we net bought about $900 million of assets. With new global lockdowns crushing activity, we've entered 2021 with the US experiencing a deceleration in growth and the likes of the UK and Europe confronting double-dip recessions. And yet long-term interest rates climbed higher in January with the 10-year Aussie government bond yield rising from 0.97% to 1.13% as markets focused on President Biden's promises of additional fiscal stimulus, the prospect of vaccines contributing to an eventual normalisation of activity, central banks ruling out an early tapering of QE, and possibly a dose of Australian economic exceptionalism as the wonder down under once again outperformed the rest of the world. Yes, Chris, this crawled the performance of long-duration fixed-rate bonds, with the Osborne Composite Bond Index, which is a fixed-rate rather than floating-rate benchmark, suffering a 0.42% loss in January. Coolabar's long-duration, in-store-only, active composite bond strategy outperformed materially, delivering a 0.12% positive gross return in January. Over the 12 months to the end of January 2021, Coolabar's active composite bond strategy returned 5.83% gross, compared to the composite bond index's 1.68%, generating 4.15% in gross excess returns, or alpha. In the short-term fixed interest or so-called cash plus space, the Osborne Bank Bill Index returned 0% in January, while the Osborne FRN Index did somewhat better with a 0.09% return. Coolabar's zero duration, average A-plus rated, smarter money, higher income fund, outperformed with a 0.4% gross return in January or 0.3% net retail, which translated into a 4.11% gross return over the last 12 months or 29 to 3% net retail. Coolabar's zero-duration average A-plus rated Smarter Money Fund also outperformed both the bank bill and FRN indices, returning 0.33% gross in January or 023 to 0.24% net retail. The Smarter Money Fund returned 3.08% gross over the past year or 2.03% to 2.16% net retail. Finally, the active hybrid ETF Coolabar runs for beta shares performed robustly, returning 0.69% net franked in the month and 4.21% net franked over the year to end January, 
representing unfranked outperformance over the sole active ASX hybrids index of 0.8% in the last 12 months after HBRD's fees. Note, when we only mention gross returns, we do so because those products are only available to install investors and fee terms are confidential. Chris, so how did credit markets feel more generally in January? Yeah, Yingers, in January, Aussie credit spreads edged lower care of light supply as global issuers tended to avoid the local market because of tighter or cheaper curves in US dollars and euros and an increasingly unfavourable cross-currency basis that makes Aussie dollar issuance less attractive. Another tailwind for the domestic credit market has been banks choosing not to replace their senior bond maturities with new issuance, given record deposit inflows and the RBA's circa $180 billion term funding facility, or TFF, which costs the banks just 0.1% for three-year money. The gradual evaporation of the $393 billion in senior-ranking Aussie bank bonds is forcing many investors to look at alternatives, such as semi-government bonds and Tier 2 securities. According to Coolabar's proprietary constant maturity indices, five-year major bank senior spreads compressed from 31 basis points to 29 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate, or BBSW, in January. Five-year major bank tier two spreads contracted from 157 to 154 basis points over the same period. Unsurprisingly, five-year major bank hybrids outperformed with their spreads declining from 300 basis points to 287 basis points over BBSW. The Aussie-listed hybrid market was especially buoyed by the news, as Coolabar had forecast late last year, that NAB had decided to repay its $2 billion NAB HA hybrid at its $100 face value price. This money will presumably be looking for a home once it is returned to NAB HA holders on February 15, which in the absence of new hybrid supply will likely push spreads materially tighter towards their post-GFC lows around 235 basis points. We did see some supply of note, including Westpac's local $1.25 billion 10-year non-core 5 tier 2 issue, which priced at just 155 basis points above BBSW making it the tightest tier two issue in the post-GFC period since Westpac's February 2018 10 non-core five deal that was bought by some investors at an incredibly expensive 140 basis points over BBSW. NAB hit the US dollar tier two market, issuing $1.25 billion of 20-year tier two at 95 basis points above US treasuries, which swapped back into Aussie dollars at a very cheap for the issuer circa 153 basis points above BBSW. ANZ finished the month off with a 750 million euro, 10 and a quarter, non-core, five and a quarter, tier two issue that priced at 112 basis points above mid-swap, swapped into Aussie dollars well inside the Aussie dollar tier two curve at just 142 basis points above BBSW. One standout in the month was the semi-government bond market where spreads on 10-year New South Wales government bonds compressed from 24.4 basis points to 19.4 basis points. After they had widened following the December S&P credit rating downgrades of both New South Wales and Victoria, which both lost their prized AAA ratings from S&P, though they remain AAA rated with Moody's, and the two states' pessimistic forecasts for large fiscal deficits this financial year. Yes, Yingyi, from Coolabar's perspective, it appeared like bank market makers had got quite short semis in November and December, with most of the RBA's weekly auctions staged to buy these bonds, transacting at spreads that were at or wide of the mid-spread, that is, materially wide of the offer spread. 
This is normally indicative of a market suffering from excess supply, although it also undoubtedly represented banks trying to build short positions by short selling to the RBA in the hope that they could buy back these bonds more cheaply when the state governments issued them new securities, particularly via TAPS. For anyone short, these weak auction results, executing wide of the mid-credit spread, sent a negative signal to the market, pushing spreads wider again. And yet a range of factors conspired in January to create what appeared to be a short squeeze in semis, much like that which emerged between August and October 2020 prior to the RBA's first round of QE. These influences included ongoing bank balance sheet buying as banks sought to put to work the circa $120 billion of excess cash they have sitting on deposit with the RBA, earning 0.0%. Enormous foreign demand for Aussie state and federal government bonds, given their world-beating yields compared to any other AAA, AA or A-rated developed economy. Market awareness of the fact that the local economy and the state budgets were materially outperforming the DUA official projections that you referred to, Yingers, although not Coolabar's forecasts, which have actually anticipated such fiscal outperformance, and reinvestment of senior bank bond maturities that were being repaid given the bank's access to the RBA's TFF. While we are very bullish on antipodean and growth over the next 12 months, there is certainly cause for some anxiety on the downside. We have a 50% probability that China tries to take Taiwan in the next few years, triggering an immediate conflict with the US and the spectre of World War III. That would almost certainly activate Australia's ANZUS treaty with the US and prevent us from selling iron ore, coal or natural gas to our biggest trading partner. Why now, you ask? Simply because there is game-changing US military kit coming down the pike in the next five years that will make it hard for China to unify Taiwan which is a defining objective of the one-person political state. And the most powerful leader in the Middle Kingdom's history knows it. Underestimating Xi's determination to win in what he perceives to be an inevitable and existential conflict with capitalism and its defender-in-chief in the form of the ailing US hegemon is a mistake almost every politician and analyst has made over the last decade, with few exceptions. So that is issue number one and our biggest left-out risk. In a new paper co-authored by Coolabar's chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, who is formerly director of forecasting at the Commonwealth Treasury, and yourself, Chris, you both outline a range of other crucial problems that the Reserve Bank of Australia is grappling with right now. While there has been much talk about the ebullient labour market, Coolabar was a massive outlier forecasting a 6 to 7% unemployment rate in April last year when consensus was at 10 to 12%. The RBA's bigger worry is its long-term failure to resuscitate wages growth. Wages are currently expanding at a record low pace of just 1.4% annually, miles below the 35 to 4% range required to sustainably lift core inflation back into the RBA's target band. To get this pay growth, the RBA needs to encourage the economy to exhaust its excess labour supply by pushing down the jobless rate to the four-point-something bogey that Governor Phil Lowe has in his crosshairs. One thing that is missed in this narrative is that the RBA is not trying to just get to the so-called non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, also known as the Nairu, but rather push right through it. After a decade of flirting with the 5% jobless rate and failing to deliver decent wage outcomes, the RBA needs the Aussie economy to overheat. Janet Yellen made exactly the same argument in respect of the world's largest economy when she was chairing the US Federal Reserve. That is, Yellen was directing the labour market through the Fed's estimate of the Nairu, which at the time was in the high 4% band. 
And we saw that the Fed succeeded with the US jobless rate falling to as low as 3.5%, which restored wages growth to its pre-GFC zone around 35 to 4%. It is somewhat ironic that notwithstanding Australia's extraordinary performance during the COVID-19 crisis, that our jobless rate of 6.6% is almost identical to the current US rate. Yes, is. I think these are all very uh, important points. And I think they shed light on why, for example, the RBA's Deputy Governor, Guy Bell recently asserted that, quote, I think in the situation we're in at the moment, I would certainly believe the right decision is to err on too much support rather than too little support, end quote. Here it's clear the RBA is learning from the lessons of the post-GFC period when it arguably underclubbed its stimulus. The contemporary wrinkle is that most of the RBA's monetary policy tools are actually tapped out. The overnight cash rate is sitting at its effective lower bound of 0.1%, as is the RBA's three-year government bond yield target. Since October 2020, banks flush with liquidity have not drawn materially down on the RBA's TFF, which now has $100 in spare untapped capacity. An important research question here is what would Martin Place be doing in the absence of these constraints? To try to address this, Coolabar's Kieran Davies forecast the RBA's cash rate using the so-called Taylor Rule from the RBA's Martin macroeconomic model. This rule sets the cash rate as a function of the real neutral cash rate forecast underlying inflation relative to the RBA's target and forecast unemployment relative to the Nauru. Kieran assumed that the real neutral cash rate has declined from the RBA's estimate of about 0.75% at the end of 2019 to 0.5% in 2020, given the wider spread between lending rates and the cash rate. He took the Nauru as equivalent to 4.5%, which is consistent with Lowe's characterization of 4-point-something. Finally, he used a forecast outlook for unemployment based on the consensus of economists, which has a more optimistic profile than the RBA's estimates, and an inflation forecast based on the RBA's November estimates, much the same as the market's profile. On this basis, the Taylor Rule points to a significantly negative cash rate of about minus 3.25% to minus 3.75% in 2021 as being optimal. And that optimal cash rate is still negative 2% to negative 3% in 2022. Given the RBA thinks that the cash rate and its three-year government bond yield target are both at their effective lower bounds of 0.1%, Kieran's modelling emphasises a need for very significant, unconventional monetary policy to be maintained in 2021, with some modest winding back in 2022. Yes, Chris. This is accentuated by the fact that Australia's unprecedented fiscal stimulus, which saw the largest peacetime budget deficits on record, is largely temporary by design. The private sector has saved some of this stimulus, but fiscal policy will be sharply contractionary over the course of 2021 as labour market subsidies, temporary welfare payments and housing grants roll off. So what can the RBA do? The RBA's current QE program, which launched in November and expires in April, was an experiment of sorts insofar as it was the first time the RBA has bought five to ten year Commonwealth and state government bonds to put downward pressure on long-term Australian interest rates, and even more importantly, our trade-weighted exchange rate. The RBA had theoretical modelling on the relationships between these variables, but no hard Australian data. There is zero doubt that the program has been immensely important in slowing the ascent of our exchange rate. Based on the historical nexus between commodity prices and the Aussie dollar, one would have expected its appreciation to be about twice as much as what we have actually experienced since the RBA launched its November QE program. 
That is to say, the RBA's QE has saved local exporters and import competing businesses from much harsher conditions. The RBA buying five-year to 10-year government bonds also has virtually no impact on housing market dynamics given most Aussie home loan borrowers use variable or short-term fixed rate products. It does not, therefore, raise the financial stability concerns associated with other more conventional tools. Furthermore, housing credit growth remains weak while there has been no net aggregate house price growth since 2017. In fact, home values in Sydney and Melbourne are actually 3.9% and 1.8% lower today than they were three years ago. A final tell that the RBA has more QE to do is the fact that our government bond yields are attracting enormous foreign demand. In late January, Victoria and Queensland launched bond issues that set records for total book demand, which hit $6 to $7 billion individually, partly fueled by overseas buyers attracted to Australia's world-beating AA and AAA-rated interest rates, which would ideally be a lot lower. This foreign capital is putting upward pressure on the Aussie dollar to the detriment of domestic growth at a time when all central banks are doing everything they can to debase their own currencies. Quantifying how much extra support is required is difficult, but in January, Coolabar predicted that the RBA would extend QE1, which is due to expire in April, with another $100 billion commitment to a new six-month QE2 program to relieve upward pressure on Australia's high long-term bond yields and the trade-weighted exchange rate. The market consensus was for the RBA to taper QE2 down to another $63 billion round of purchases with some like Capital Economics claiming that the RBA would not do any further QE at all after April. As it turned out, the RBA validated Coolabar's controversial QE2 forecast in January with a new six-month $100 billion QE program announced at its first board meeting in February. Since this was announcing as Coolabar has actually unveiled a big new forecast, we now expect QE3 when QE2 ends in October this year with a third six-month $100 billion extension in late 2021, followed by additional purchases likely next year with the size depending on the path of the virus and the state of the economy. In forecasting QE2 in January, we argued that more stimulus, not less, was needed for the RBA to achieve its ambitious economic objectives of lowering unemployment enough to secure the strong 35 to 4% plus wages growth needed to finally return core inflation to the 2 to 3% target. All this points to near zero interest rates for the foreseeable future, with QE an ongoing feature of Australia's fixed income markets. This is an important distinction that means QE is no longer considered a temporary COVID-19 mitigant in the manner of the federal government's fiscal stimulus, the RBA's repo liquidity injections, or its term funding facility. For so long as the overnight cash rate and the three-year government bond yield target are stuck at their effective lower bounds at 0.1%, the RBA's QE program will be the most active and dynamic part of its ongoing monetary policy apparatus, which can be seamlessly calibrated up or down according to its economic requirements. Yes, Chris. As Governor Lowe testified to Parliament last week, inflation will probably undershoot the RBA's target for the whole of his term, which ends in late 2023. And he stressed that even when inflation is finally back in the ban, the RBA would probably hold off for a few quarters before raising rates to make sure higher inflation would be sustained. In the meantime, Lowe advised Parliament that the RBA hasn't ruled out further bond purchases, laying the foundations for QE3 and QE4. We have high conviction in a $100 billion QE3 call, given the formidable challenge faced by the RBA in achieving full employment where, 
Firstly, the economy is a long way from full employment and by definition, therefore, a significant distance from finally returning inflation to the 2-3% to target band. Unemployment has likely peaked at a less disastrous level than feared. But Governor Lowe has previously characterised full employment as an unemployment rate in the fours, which history suggests will be very difficult to achieve. Indeed, we have not seen it since the pre-GFC era. Governor Lowe's parliamentary testimony implied that it may take five to six years to return inflation to target, rating the chances of beating this goal over the remainder of his term, which ends in late 2023, as not very high, even though the board is doing everything it can to achieve it. Secondly, QE is the obvious option left to the RBA, given it is reluctant to adopt negative rates. The cash rate is at the RBA's effective lower bound of 0.1%, and Governor Lowe continues to strongly push back on the negative policy rates adopted in Europe and Japan, arguing they could cause problems in the banking sector and prove ineffective. Thirdly, the RBA's analysis implies QE1 has worked but its influence has been offset by stronger global forces. The RBA argues that QE has helped lower interest rates and meant that the Australian dollar is lower than it otherwise would have been, reducing long-term Commonwealth bond yields by around 30 basis points, contributing to lower semi-spreads and adding to market liquidity. This latter point is interesting because some banks and issuers had asserted that QE would reduce market liquidity, which has not been our experience as one of the more active participants in the space. Our peers at Bank Balance Sheets also advise that they believe that the RBA's QE program has actually enhanced liquidity in the semi-government bond market. Fourth, the RBA has emphatically pushed back on market speculation of tapering of policy support. The RBA sought to nip this speculation in the bud by the early announcement of QE2 at its first meeting in 2021, with low warning that it is premature to be considering withdrawal of the monetary stimulus because it is going to be some years before the goals for inflation and unemployment are achieved. We strongly agree with this view, as speculation of tapering at this point would be counterproductive. Fifth, the RBA's commitment to keeping policy easy enough to secure full employment is unlikely to be shaken by strength in the labour market. Governor Lowe has stressed that a very tight labour market was needed to produce a material lift in wages. He said, while unemployment could fall faster than anticipated, the board and bank staff had discussed the powerful structural factors lowering the NIRU, i.e. globalisation, supply chain dynamics, technology and the reduced bargaining power of workers, where the experience prior to the pandemic in the US, UK, and in Australia, New South Wales, was that wage growth remained stubbornly low in the face of unemployment reaching 40 to 50 year lows. Six, rising house prices are a non-issue at present. Higher asset prices are part of the transmission mechanism of the lower cash rate and national dwelling prices have only just reached the point they were in 2017. Something we've repeatedly canvassed that Governor Lowe has himself recently started highlighting. Financial stability is also currently a non-issue given conservative lending standards and slow growth in household debt. In this respect, QE is a cleaner policy option for the RBA since it operates mainly through the long-term bond market and a lower exchange rate with no direct impact on mortgage rates and or housing demand. If the risks around financial stability change, the RBA and APRA know they can cauterize these problems via macroprudential policy measures. Finally, further purchases, or QE4, are likely in 2022, with any tapering hinging on the path of the virus and the state of the economy.
The RBA should dole out QE in six-month intervals, but the ultimate size and duration of this form of monetary stimulus depends on the rate of progress towards full employment, where the RBA could be derailed by several factors, including one, the path of the virus, sporadic outbreaks may continue, but the government expects most Australians will be vaccinated by later this year. That said, Australia's tough elimination strategy to deal with the virus may see the international border close well into 2022 or even 2023, given the patchy distribution of vaccines overseas and the potential for dangerous mutations of the virus. Two, the unwinding of an unprecedented fiscal stimulus, which will gather pace over 2021. The fiscal stimulus was temporary by design, with Prime Minister Morrison stressing that the Commonwealth is not running a blank check budget. Three, upward pressure on the exchange rate from easy money abroad. RBA modelling indicates effective QE requires a lower exchange rate, whereas ongoing bond purchases by other central banks has pushed the currency higher. Lowe said other banks are extending their purchases to the end of this year, noting that if some central banks are doing QE, most of the rest of us feel we need to do that as well, otherwise our currency will go up. As he testified, we live in an interconnected world, and if we were to cease bond purchases in April, it is likely that there would be unwelcome upward pressure on the exchange rate that would further delay the already slow progress on jobs and inflation. Finally, a modest take-up of the TFF. The TFF will close to new applications in June unless there is a market deterioration in funding and credit conditions. The RBA expects banks will tap the remaining circa $100 billion in the facility over coming months. If these funds are not dispersed, there would be less monetary stimulus in the pipeline, pointing to additional QE to fill the gap. Well, Yingers, it's hard to disagree with anything you've just said. And certainly longer term, if the economic recovery unexpectedly falters, then the RBA may have to consider less attractive policy options, such as buying foreign bonds to lower the Aussie dollar, while the government could be forced to put its plans for fiscal consolidation on hold. So we once again have a renewal of the interesting tension, or would be tension, between fiscal and monetary policy. On the one hand, we have fiscal policy shifting into a contractionary phase, whilst on the other, monetary policy is redlining with its stimulus. And there's no doubt that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg would probably want to deliver taxpayers some positive news on the size of the fiscal deficits that have previously been telegraphed as we head into the next election to reinforce their economic bona fides and their history of balancing budgets. Well, Yingers, I think that brings to an end this uh, episode of the podcast. Hopefully everyone has found it informative. If you want to reach out to us directly, by all means do by emailing us at info at coolabarcapital.com. Alternatively, please speak to your representatives at Winston Capital or Pinnacle Investment Management. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.